Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Got a fascinating episode for you today about a bizarre true crime mystery that has lasted in a small town in Illinois for almost a hundred years. Okay, on with the show. I am so pleased to have as my guest today historian Craig Moreland. He, along with author Toby Jones, collaborated on the book we are about to discuss today, It is called The Furnace Girl, The Mysterious Case of Elfrida Kanak. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm going to ask you a question right off the bat. I'm sure you get asked a lot. Uh, Where did you first hear about this story, uh, this mystery? Sure. So if you grow up in Salem, Massachusetts, you probably hear about the Salem Witch Trials. And when you grow up in Lake Bluff, Illinois you hear about Elfrida Kanak. Um, This story was told to us and actually taught to us in our eighth grade history class by our eighth grade history teacher, Kathy O'Hara. And uh, Kathy O'Hara is now the Lake Bluff Town historian. She has since retired from from teaching, but this was part of the history curriculum (laughs) as a student in, in Lake Bluff. And, and so we, we've 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 known about this, heard about this story forever. But um, after I got out of college, I got involved uh, with the history museum in our town and was on the board. And one of the projects that we put on at the museum is a um, ghost walk, which is done biannually, and it's it's kind of like a Christmas carol, but with a Halloween spin to it. It involves typically 80 to 90 local actors who act out scenes from our town's uh, history and a a ghoul guides them to various locations in in town for this. So, of course, the highlight of 
the ghost walk is always the Alfreda Canac scene. And, and that was always a scene that I wrote and produced for, for the show. So I, I always had a keen interest uh, for this particular story uh, as a youth, but then that continued on as an adult with my work with the History Museum as well. So, like you just mentioned, these events took place in Lake Bluff in 1928. Can you explain to my listeners where Lake Bluff is exactly and what kind of town was it back then? Sure. So, Lake Bluff is located 25 miles north of the city of Chicago. So, if you were looking at a map, we are halfway, if you looked at Chicago and you looked at Milwaukee, Wisconsin, halfway between those two points, that's where Lake Bluff is. So we're, we're right on the lake. And um, back in 28, Lake Bluff was a pretty sleepy town. I, there were probably only about 500 residents that lived here at that time. Now there's close to 6,000. So it was a pretty sleepy little village. And the, the, the town really started as a, as a resort area back in the late 1800s. Many of the folks who worked in the city of Chicago traveled north for the summertime uh, to their vacation homes. And so uh, really Lake Bluff uh, had many small little cottages that that people came to for the summer and then then became their full-time residence. This was not a town used to foul play, was it? Correct. Nor nor is it still. I mean, we, we we have such such a low crime rate in, in this particular town. And, and we really don't have a whole lot of uh, things that happen here that are earth shattering, so to speak. So this is a mystery that has endured since 1928 in your town. And it revolves around a young woman named Elfrida Kanak. Can you tell us about her, who she was, her occupation, her family, her background? Sure. So, Alfreda Kanak was a 30-year-old book agent slash former school teacher. She, she went to college for uh, education to, to be a teacher, and she, she taught elementary school uh, for roughly six years. And then after that, she decided to go into encyclopedia sales. And, and so she had a, a, a career change at that point. And if you think about that for the time in the 1920s, uh, a door-to-door encyclopedia sales girl was was a little unusual. This was typically a man's position of a door-to-door salesperson. And so that tells you maybe a little bit about her and, and maybe her grit and inte- integrity to, to kind of get the sale. And she wasn't just a sales agent. She was one of the top sales agents. Uh, for the Compton Encyclopedia Company that was based out of Chicago. Now, that later becomes the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, she came from, and, and, and in, if you read the newspaper articles, many of them say she came from a wealthy, prominent family. She didn't come from a wealthy family, but she came from a prominent family in, in the town of Deerfield, which is located about uh, 10 miles from Lake Bluff. Her, her father, Theodore Knack, was the very first uh, town physician in Deerfield, Illinois, and he started the first pharmacy. She was one of 11 children, nine that lived into adulthood. So there were two children from the Knack family that died in infancy. So they were a, a large German family. Uh, her, her family was very, very religious. 
her father was instrumental in actually starting the very first uh, Presbyterian church in Deerfield, Illinois, and everyone in the family was involved at the church. Her sister played the organ, uh, and uh, Elfrida taught Sunday school. So uh, they were very devout in their faith, and um, because they ran the town pharmacy, everyone in town knew who they were. Sure. So the events that your book are based around happened just prior to Halloween 1928. Maybe we should just start right there. Um, Can you talk about that evening and how she was discovered? Sure. So if we were to do kind of a CSI timeline on this, when I first started working on, on this book project, at the Lake Bluff History Museum, we had probably 50 to 70 articles about this case from newspapers as far away as New York and L.A. Uh, to uh, all in the, in the Midwest as well. And they were out of order. And what I tried to do was, was form a timeline and actually put everything in, in, in place. And, and, and the thing to keep in mind with all this, too, Eric, is – is when you think of like the old black and white movies of eight reporters running to a phone booth to call in the the story that's kind of how this 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 all worked back in that time there were so many facts misreported that were picked up on the AP and then incorrectly stated in another newspaper and then 3 years after that uh, a magazine article would be written on this based on the newspaper articles and so many of the facts of the case um, are incorrectly reported. And, and I, I'm mentioning that because if, if we're going to talk about this, I want to talk about the true facts of the case and, and not what is just online because you'll read a hundred other different versions. And, and when I do book talks and, and speak to groups, everyone always brings up various points about, about things that were misreported. Um, the source that I used to, to, to verify Everything that the book is based on was the Waukegan Daily News. And, and at the time, again, this was front page news across the country, but in the Chicago Tribune also covered this pretty heavily. But there, there were really three major newspapers in, in Chicago. There was the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Daily News, and the Waukegan Daily News. And Waukegan is the largest town north of Chicago. It was the largest, second largest city in Illinois at that time. And um, it also was the city closest to Lake Bluff. So whereas the Tribune would run one one article a day about this case, the Waukegan Daily News would oftentimes run two and three articles a day. They would run an article about the Kanak family and what was going on with them. And they would run an article about the facts of the case and the investigators. So the the Waukegan Daily News to me was the most reliable source because it was closest to where this took place. And the only way you can access the Waukegan Daily News is going to the Waukegan Library. It's not accessible through any other way. It's on microfilm. And so I went through all the microfilm at Waukegan Library. So taking you through the timeline, um, Alfreda Kanak left on the uh, October 29th in the afternoon uh, from her Deerfield home. And, and went to Chicago to the Compton Book Company, which is where she worked, and to, to be at a sales conference. And she also did a presentation there, and she seemed to be in good spirits. Roughly around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they took a break. She phoned home, 
And um, it's important to know that Alfreda lived in the family home in Deerfield with her mother, who was 75, with her two sisters, uh, Emma Kanak and Ida Kanak, and then also uh, her brother Alvin Kanak. And, and, and Alfreda was the youngest, being 30 years of age. So you had four adults living with their mother in the family home. She ends up uh, calling her sister during a break around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, states that she'll be home around 7.30 that evening. Um, they were a musical family. She said she had purchased some sheet music and that they'd play the piano and have a good sing. And that's the last that the family hears from her. What ends up happening is she uh, she's reported having left the Compton Book Company around 6 or 6.30 p.m. after the conference had finished. And she takes an interurban electric train, which was the mode of transportation at that time from Chicago, to Highland Park. Now, Highland Park is the closest city to Deerfield, and from there she would then take a bus from Highland Park to her, her home back in Deerfield. Upon arriving at the Deerfield train station, she finds out that the bus uh, that typically would take her two miles from Highland Park to, to her home has broken down and they're expecting an hour, hour and a half delay. And so at that point, she checks her book carrying bag that she, she carried her encyclopedias with and she then purchases a round trip ticket to Lake Bluff. There's varying reports of this. There, if you read some articles, there are some folk, some folks that say that no one ever saw her get off the train in Lake Bluff. There are other reports in the Waukegan Daily News that the train attendant uh, did actually see her get off the train in, in Lake Bluff. So at that point, she, she gets off the train and she goes to the Lake Bluff Village Hall. Now, the Lake Bluff Village Hall served as three different things. It was the village hall, it was the police station, and it was the fire station. At 7.30 the next morning, when the chief of police, Barney Rosenhagen, and the town kind of ground supervisor, he was a municipal workman, uh, arrive at the village hall. They open the door and they realize that the building feels very cold. And so at that point, the chief of police orders Chris Lewis, the, the maintenance man, down to the basement to, obviously they felt that the furnace had gone out in the basement. And it's there where Chris Lewis discovers Alfreda Kanak naked and burned, leaning up against the furnace. So that is how uh, she's found, and that's how this story uh, starts off. Now, upon discovering her, he races back upstairs to tell Barney Rosenhagen that he thinks he's seen a ghost because, you know, it's dark and dimly lit down there. And they race down to realize that it, it's actually Alfreda Kanak. Uh, who is naked and burned with burns over really about 30% of her body. Most of her burns were with her hands and feet and head. So at, at, at that point, uh, they put a blanket around her and they call the Wenban Ambulance Service, who then transport her to what was Lake Force Hospital or the Alice Home, where she lives for three days until November 2nd. And during that time period that she is alive, she tells varying stories of how she got there and how this happened to her. What else was found at the crime scene? Were the on-duty police officers 
competent in their initial investigation? So the, the only thing that was left was next to the furnace where she was burned was her watch, a pair of shoes, a small bag with uh, uh, small belongings that had a round-trip ticket uh, from Lake Bluff to, to uh, Highland Park. And as far as any evidence goes, all the evidence was thrown out because everything that had been burned in the furnace – being her garments that she wore, they, they found they found uh, small metal clasps and things that that they could tell were undergarment related material, but um, everything was thrown out accidentally because Lake Bluff was not a trained police force. Uh, Barney Rosenhagen, who was the chief of police, not only uh, served in that role, but he was also the chief of the fire department. And he was also the village grounds man. So, uh, you know, he had been hired back in the late 1800s to fulfill, you know, three positions uh, for, for the village. And, and at that time, you you work multiple, you wore multiple hats, right? So, so with that, uh, no, Barney Rosenhagen, the chief of police, was not used to uh, dealing with anything involving crimes. And neither was the assistant police person, which was uh, Eugene Spade, who eventually goes on to become our chief of police after this story ends. But Eugene Spade, even, who was the police deputy, had no formal police training. He, I, I found in, in, in researching him through Ancestry, he had a fifth grade education and served in World War One in the Navy. So beyond that, that was the only schooling and training that 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 he had had so we have a police chief who is not trained in investigating crime scenes what was the department's first impulse was it to contain the story did the papers get their hands on it pretty quickly well the very first thing that they thought is what you would probably think and that is that it was a homicide you know, if if a, if a woman nowadays was found naked and burned in the basement of a public building, especially the police department building, you would think that it was a homicide, that, that someone else was involved in this. So their first instinct to this was, oh, my gosh, this woman's been beaten and drugged here to die uh, in the basement. Who placed her here? So, um, you know, that was the gut initial reaction to this. But they don't reach out to the Waukegan sheriff until roughly 11.30 that, that same morning, which I'm sure we'll get to this. The main suspect in the case becomes a character, Charles Hitchcock. But what a lot of people don't realize is really the person who was more of a suspect in this case than Charles Hitchcock was Barney Rosenhagen, the chief police primarily because people suspected that um, evidence was covered up uh, and that he was the last person to lock up the building that night and he was the first to enter it. So this all happened under his watch. And then the fact that time passed from the time they entered the building from 7 in the morning until 11.30 that, that, that morning to reach out to the sheriff through further suspicion on Barney Rosenhagen as being the person involved in this woman's beating or potential death. So um, 
the papers don't pick up on this uh, right away. I mean, it's 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 newspaper headlines the next day. But, you know, keep in mind that it was the newspapers at that time. There was no TV, you know. So with that, it, it was in the newspapers the next day that they suspected that a woman had been beaten and drugged to the village hall slash police station to die, which became a sensational story unto itself. But by the next day, when they start interviewing her at the hospital, that's at the time that she starts saying that, she had done this to herself, that this was a, a way in which she was trying to cleanse herself through what was called the refiner's fire for her sins. Now, keep in mind, this was a very religious family. And back in the 1920s, you also have to realize that there was kind of a movement going on at that time that if if folks felt they had sinned, they would try to burn themselves to cleanse themselves in God's eyes, and that was known as the refiner's fire. So that's what the story then changes to, is it goes from a, a a woman that was drugged to the village hall and beaten and burned to a suicide attempt by a woman for a spiritual rite or passage. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. You said that as she manages to hang on over a few days, her story changed. What were some of the different versions of her story of what had happened to her? Well, the the, the first thing that she said and, and what threw Charles Hitchcock into this was while she was being transported from the village hall to the hospital, she kept saying, Hitch, oh, Hitch, Hitch, um, which we can get to later. So there was kind of a hint to to that. But she initially sticks when when, when her family rushes to the hospital uh, by that afternoon. She really pretty much in in telling the doctors, the nurses, her family members, she sticks pretty much to her story that she had done this to herself, and that it, it her story doesn't start changing until. The following couple days where she then says, why did they do this to me? To Frank threw me down to <laughs> to and and and, and that, that was kind of a, enough unto itself that other folks started thinking that there were others involved. But what what made it more difficult, though, was then there were people actually reaching out to the police and and making false confessions saying they were involved there was a limousine or chauffeur driver from the neighboring town of Lake Bluff, Lake Forest, who said that he had beaten Miss Kanak and drug her there and then fled. And then there was another false confession from a person who was said he was a reincarnated Egyptian priest and had put her under a hypnotic trance and then fled the building. So you've got all these different letters and stories and versions coming through, and this is where the story gets a little mishmashed because of the confusion of that. And it doesn't help either that she's highly medicated. Well, that's the other thing, too, is keep in mind that newspapers at that time were more like the National Enquirer. They were the the headlines were sensationalized, and the more they could embellish to make a story, you know, a, a bigger thing. That 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 was the job of the newspapers, and and so you have that, and then what you end up also having is is they start taking statements after she's been there three days and four days, well, her second day and third day before she passes, and they start taking those statements and turning those into headlines. So. You know, I my father passed away a few years back, and and I think about his state of mind when I think back to when when he finally passed away, and what his state of mind was. You know, he was saying all sorts of things that didn't make any sense. When I look at it closer, as he neared death, and that's really what you had happening with Elfrida Kanak was she was making all sorts of statements, as you said, medicated on morphine. But really, as you look at as at many of the headlines that were very sensationalized, they were all around the first, second, and third of November, which was right before she passed away. And so, 
you know, do you want to take what somebody's saying in their bed while they're medicated a day before they die and turn turn that into a story? I mean, that that's where many folks are misled and where this where where their facts are incorrect based on the statements she made. For sure. So did they start investigating leads and rounding up suspects while she was still alive or did it really kick into gear once she had passed on? Well, they, they start investigating. that The person who becomes the lead suspect in the case is Charles Hitchcock. And and this happens basically a, a, about a day after she reaches the hospital, and it's based on what I had said where she had said in the ambulance ride, you know, Hitch, oh, Hitch. Charles Hitchcock was a gentleman who, who lived in Lake Bluff who was a 45-year-old father of four, who lived uh, two blocks from the village hall. Now, the importance and role in his case is he becomes the lead suspect because uh, Wall Alfreda is at the hospital. She says that they had a love pact and that she burned herself because she was in love with Charles Hitchcock and that th- this was her sin to, to God. And, and Charles Hitchcock, uh, their connection point was Hitchcock worked also at the police station as our police night watchman. Hitchcock was a former silent movie actor from the early 1900s. Um, he worked as an actor at the SNE Studios in Chicago, which was one of the largest silent movie houses in, in the Midwest at, at the time that movie making was beginning. And many of the folks within that uh, movie company moved to California and went on to fame and riches. Hitchcock stayed back in the Chicago area and did local theater and vaudeville type one man acts and 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 basically eked out a living. So he he really worked a few jobs and pieced together a living that way. One being a, a local actor and doing one man shows. Two working as our night police dispatch in our small little sleepy town. And three. He taught elocution lessons, which were public speaking lessons, if you want to think of it kind of like a Dale Carnegie public speaking success course at the Waukegan YMCA, which was just, you know, two miles up the road from Lake Bluff. And this is where he and Alfreda Kanak get to know one another because Alfreda, it's found, had enrolled in Charles Hitchcock's classes at the YMCA to better her her sales pitch for her encyclopedia sales job. And she would stop by the Lake Bluff Village Hall at night when she knew Charles was on duty, who was her teacher, for private tutoring lessons. So as the police are finding this out and and the sheriff are, are, are asking these questions, they now see the connection. And this is where Charles Hitchcock then becomes really the lead suspect in the case. Do you think he used his quasi-movie stardom to seduce women? I think he was a very... Uh, how would I say this? I think he was a very slimy character. He, um, I, I think he was like a lot of folks who are into acting and performing, that they liked the attention that that's given with that and the fact that he was a teacher and that he had a woman that was 15 years younger than he was single interested in him uh probably was something 
of a big deal to him. And do I think that they were romantically involved? I, I do. And um, we can talk about this later if you like, but, but evidence comes up later to our history museum that, um, that they were romantically involved, even though he denies this the whole time. In the newspapers, he says that it was nothing more than a student-pupil relationship between the two of them, and that he had no idea that she was infatuated with him, uh, when in fact, I actually came to find out that that was not the truth. Hmm, okay. <laughs> so what was Hitchcock's alibi? So again, one of the reasons why Barney Rosenhagen becomes a central figure to this is because Hitchcock's alibi was that he was at home that night with a broken ankle, which was confirmed by a physician that the week prior to this all taking place, Hitchcock was treated at the hospital for an ankle. Um, the physician was asked and questioned if he thought Charles Hitchcock would have the ability to crutch his way from his home two blocks away to the village hall. And, and the physician answered yes, he clearly could do that, but he would probably have swelling if that was the case. So, um, and he didn't see that when he did any type of post-examination later on. So um, Hitchcock says that he's at home that night. His wife, he, he's, home, he's home with his four children. His, his wife, though, states that he's also at home, but she is gone most of the evening because she worked as a bookkeeper and she did the books for a music store in Highland Park, ironically, where Elfrida had been at the train station. And Mrs. Hitchcock uh, worked in the evenings, usually from 8 until 11, doing the books for, for this one bookstore so or music store. So she was not home. One of Hitchcock's friends, Oscar Cloer, stops by and, and states that he had uh, been there that evening in a, until about 10.30 p.m. and had had a drink with Hitchcock. So Hitchcock does have an alibi. He's, he's got a broken ankle. He's, he has a friend that verifies that he was at home up until 1030 uh, at night, but his wife doesn't get home until after midnight. So there is an hour and a half window from 1030 till midnight where his whereabouts are not necessarily accounted for. Can you talk about the book that was found amongst her belongings and how it tied into the case? Sure. So uh, after Alfreda passes away, her family members are cleaning out her room, as most folks might do when someone uh, passes away. And uh, within her room, they find several things. They actually find a diary. They find letters that she had. She had a writing relationship with a, another person, this B. Locke, whose name was Luella Rowe. There is a... Um, calendar that that talks about how when she had gone to seen Hitchcock for for lessons and in addition to that they also find next to her bedstand a book called Christ in You and there is the ninth lesson which is called the refiner's fire and this is of course underlined where it talks about the only way to truly know God is through the refiner's fire and through pain and so this, of course, then connects to the pain and the burning in the furnace. 
this is part of what leads some people to believe that she committed suicide. Well, not intentional suicide, right? But she was burning herself to find enlightenment or reach some sort of spiritual awareness. Correct. And I, I, I think this is real important to know that that one of the things that most folks who read things online about this case don't understand is even Alfreda's brothers believe she went into the village hall to burn herself. Uh, she tells them this in her hospital bed. They, though, hire George Hargrave, the detective who was hired by the state's attorney to initially investigate the case because the the Kanak family obviously develops a, a relationship with the detective on the case. And when the state's attorney says, all right, this is ruled a suicide and they have a coroner's inquest that that's that does ends up with the same conclusion, the Kanak brothers hire George Hargrave from the Hargrave Detective Agency to continue looking through the case because they're finding these letters in Elfrida's room. They're finding her her um, daily planner or her calendar, which which shows her whereabouts. And and but but what what the Kanak family believed was that what what they wanted in this whole case was who was morally responsible for their sister's death brought to justice. And and that's something that we don't talk about these days. When Whenever anyone dies, no one wants to accept any type of responsibility and fear of being sued. And, and really, this case is, is more, to me, closely related to, if you think about the cases of, um, there was that case in Massachusetts with the girlfriend who was texting her boyfriend and trying to convince him to kill himself, uh, and, and he ended up committing suicide, and she was sent to jail for that. She didn't commit the murder, but she was found guilty of, of morally convincing her boyfriend to, to do this. And and the Kanak family felt the same way. They just felt like there was – they knew their sister went into the village hall. They didn't believe that she was – she was necessarily beaten and burned by anybody, but they did believe that there was someone else involved in this other than just their sister. Now, whether they thought that that was Charles Hitchcock, whether they thought this was B. Uh, Locke, the person who she had this these letters back and forth with, they didn't know. But that's why they hired the Hargrave Detective Agency to further investigate the case. What did the detective conclude? Well, what they ended up finding was was um, Alfreda had a very strange relationship that appeared to be of sexual nature with a woman from Libertyville. Now, Libertyville is, again, about three miles away from Lake Bluff West of where we're located. And uh, the letters that they found were between her and this woman, B. Locke or Luella Rowe, who Alfreda had gone and sold a set of encyclopedias to, and they had developed a friendship during that time period. And when you when you read some of these letters that B. Locke wrote to Alfreda, they just read like it was a romantic relationship between the two of them. She accuses Alfreda of of casting her spell on her and almost hypnotizing her and 
uh, mastering her, as she said, the very first time they met. And so it's and, and, and they talk about in the letters about going through with this pact of if they would have the strength to to, to do this. And, and this being was that the burning? Was this something that she was going to do with this person? But strangely enough, when they trace these letters back, they to to this B lock, they find that when they go to the the address that are that's written on the envelopes, it's this Luella uh, Rowe woman who is then brought up to the state's attorney's office and is questioned by A. V. Smith, the state's attorney, and he just doesn't think there's any evidence to to support anything. He realized that they seem to have some type of relationship, but. She said that she was at home that night. I believe her husband verified her whereabouts. And so she is then no longer a suspect in, in the case anymore. Now, now keep in mind that this actually also happened two weeks after the coroner's inquest. I always wondered why, why this B-lock never testified at the coroner's inquest. And it's because the inquest happened the first week in November, uh, uh, roughly four or five days after Alfreda's death. And then it wasn't until the family was cleaning out her belongings in her room that then they found these letters. So it was mid to late November when B. Locke became a suspect after the Kanak family had hired George Hargrave to investigate more. So does that answer the question? Absolutely, yeah. Didn't she have, like, buyer's remorse as well? She tried to get her money back from Elfrida? yeah. Within the letters that were written, she um, states how uh, when she had the books boxed and ready to be returned and called Elfrida to state that she was ready for her to pick them up, there seemed to be, uh, at that point, um, Elfrida turned on her. And uh, I think, honestly, that was probably her salesmanship part, that that she was – I think Elfrida was, was kind of – a, a very good salesperson, and, and once once somebody wanted to return something, I don't think uh, she was probably too happy about it, which is where there was a divide between the two of them, or, or probably a falling out. Yeah. So this idea of homicide versus suicide, it's all speculation at this point, right? It, it, it is. I, I honestly... It, the thing is, Eric, in order to understand this case even more, if you want to just read the headlines and go by what was in the headlines, you can go with that. But you also have to kind of know what was going on in town beyond what was being reported in the headlines. And you also have to know what happened after this took place, after the reporters left, after everything went back to normal, uh, what took place and happened in this story. And there, there's a, a interesting article in Detectives Magazine that was written about three years after this, where Hargrave is is interviewed, and also Hargrave's father, who uh, Edward Hargrave, who started the detective agency. And there's a story of two men that were seen driving suspiciously around uh, town, who who had rented a home east of town that the neighbors all suspected that there was some suspicious activity going on. There was also a bootlegging operation that was was going on in Lake Bluff at that time, which was, of course, not a part of the papers and and not not connected to the story. 
but there was some there were some suspicious characters in town at the time and so beyond that those those things you also then have Alfreda's best friend Marie Mueller who we don't suspect as being anyone other than her best friend who testifies at Alfreda at Alfreda's coroner's inquest that when she was asked if she thought her friend would have the mental uh, strength to be able to do this to herself, her friend says yes. She was very devout in her faith, and she could very easily see herself doing this. Um, and that's pretty much it. And Marie is is written off as as just Alfreda's friend. But what you need to, need to know is 14 years after this takes place, who ends up becoming Hitchcock's second wife, but Alfreda's best friend, Marie Mueller. And Marie Mueller ends up telling her niece, who contacted the History Museum, that Marie and Alfreda were in a love triangle back at this time with Charles Hitchcock. And, and Marie knew what happened that night in the village hall, but she would take that secret to her grave and that she would never defy her beloved Charles Hitchcock. So had the investigators known that connection, there would have been some more things investigated and looked at beyond just what was in the headlines. Right. So if Elfrida had done this to herself, can you walk us through just physically what she would have had to have done that night slash morning in order to give herself the injuries that she was found with. What would have had to have happened for those injuries to take place? Right. So, so the, despite there being a coroner's inquest and a, an autopsy performed, all that information is missing and gone, which we can talk about later. That's mysterious unto itself. But I found in the Waukegan Daily News, there was a press conference that was held where a group of physicians uh, listened to the medical evidence that was presented by the coroner about her injuries. So, so we don't have any, we don't have the, auto, the original autopsy reports, but what, what we do have is the information that's provided in the Waukegan Daily News about the extent of her injuries. And the extent of her burns were as follows. Her both her hands were basically burned off at where your fingernails start. So her her fingers were burned to where first knuckles completely off. Her toes were also burned off, both of her feet and also uh, to her heel. Uh, you could see the exposed bone to her heel. So that's how badly both her feet and hands were burned. So in order to do this. Um, and what she said she did, and this is what she confessed to in the in her hospital bed, was she said that she burned uh, she she burned the back of her head first by putting her head into the furnace door opening, and then turned around and and burned her right foot, and then she burned her left foot, and then put her hands in one at a time and burned her hands. So. The, the medical physician said that it would be, to, to the extent of, of her burns, it would be basically impossible for a person to do this to themselves. 
without the assistance of someone else or without potentially being hypnotized or heavily medicated somehow, it would be virtually impossible for someone to burn themselves as badly as she did because you would basically have to put your hands into a bed of hot coals for probably five to ten minutes and hold them there to burn yourself the way that she was burned. I mean, it seems almost ritualistic, don't you think? It does. And again, if because she was very devout in her faith, because she was an incredibly talented salesperson and had a, an, an, an incredible amount of self-determination, would she have been able to do this? You know, I would say no. I would say even the person of strongest of faiths wouldn't be able to do this unless they were somehow hypnotized or had some assistance with someone else. Now, also keep in mind this, too. When people are talking about the furnace, here, here's what I discovered that I didn't know about when I started on the book project. The, the, there were two furnaces in the basement of the Lake Bluff Village Hall which I always thought there was only one, but there were two. There was a main furnace that heated the whole building. And and the furnace that she was burned in was a furnace, but it, it it's really what it was called was it was a gravity-fed water boiler. And the purpose of it was to supply hot water through through the building. So it was a water heater in essence. And if you look at and when you look at historic pictures of this, You'll see that there, it looks like a giant like tire that sits on a, on, on a furnace on the top, and that was the tank. That's where the hot water was stored, and that would circulate uh, throughout, throughout the building, come down. It was gravity-fed. Would, gravity would bring the water down. It would heat, and then, and then the water pressure would be heated and recirculate up. So she wasn't technically burned in the furnace. She was really burned in the gravity-fed water boiler furnace, which was a much smaller unit, which had a small door opening to it, similar to like a pot belly stove. But this was this was really about only four feet tall in height. So in order to, to, to do this, she would have to, you know, she would have the ability to stick her head in, in through the door. The measurement of the door was nine and three quarters uh, by 12 and three quarters. And I actually built... <laughs> in a CSI way, an exact scale replica model of the furnace. And you can put your head in there and you can put your hands in there and you can put your feet in there, but you would have to hold on to something from above and, and then burn your feet and then stand on that foot that you had just burned and then put your other foot in and burn it. You couldn't burn them both at the same time. So that's also where the physician said there's no way a person would be able to stand on one foot they they had burned. Now, I actually spoke with physicians about this and also burn unit physicians. And here's what they explained to me about burns. They said, Craig, what you have to understand is what she had were third degree burns. And if you can get through the initial, like, like when we put cookies in an oven and we touch something that's hot and we get a blister, that's a first degree burn and you and and that hurts for like 3 to 5 days when you have a third degree burn if you are burned so badly that you have like a foot or a hand that sat in a fire for a minute or two 
if you can get through that initial pain, you literally burn the nerve endings off at that point. So you don't feel any pain. And that's what she was saying in the hospital even before she died was she was feeling no pain. And that's because according to physicians that I spoke to, they're, they're correct. She literally burned – if she burned herself or was assisted with this, she burned herself so badly that she burned the nerve endings. So she would not feel the the pain that a person would if they had just burned themselves touching something that was hot. So was she possibly medicated in some way if she went through with this? The only thing that I thought about is really two things. One, if she had the self-determination to do this. Two, if she had somebody to help or assist her with this. And three, keep in mind her family owned a pharmacy in 1920. And, and back in 1920, cocaine was in Coca-Cola. It was in toothpaste. It was over-the-counter at that time. So did she have access to something that the average – well, an average person would have access to it, but a person that worked and whose family owned a pharmacy would clearly have access to numbing agents or things that could maybe potentially initially help them get through some of the initial pain. So – you know, was that was that tested for in her autopsy? No, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't tested at the hospital. And that that would if, if I was investigating the case, that's what I would have wanted to know right away is blood work. You know, what was in her system? You know, interestingly enough, someone asked one of the best questions at one of the talks that I did. They asked the question, did anyone ever test to see if she was pregnant? And I went, whoa, <laughs> that, that is a great question. You know, if she was romantically involved in Charles Hitchcock with Charles Hitchcock, if she was pregnant, you know, would that have been enough for her to mentally do what she needed to do because she had sinned in God's eyes? I, I, I don't have the answer to that. Sadly, if this were, if this had happened in 2020, we'd probably all know the answer to this in about five minutes. There'd be security cameras. <laughs> there would be uh, all sorts of evidence uh, with DNA that, that could be tested, but we don't have that. So we're going off of what, what was available in 1928. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Or had Hitchcock somehow hypnotized her with the intention of 
keeping her from having the baby. <laughs> I mean, this is pure speculation right now. <laughs> we don't know if there's a baby or not. I don't know much about hypnotism. Did Hitchcock, number one, know how to do it in the first place? And number two, do you know, can you trick someone's mind to withstand third-degree burns? Is that possible? I don't... Uh, well, the the first part I'll answer as far as did Hitchcock know how to hypnotize anyone? He's actually asked that exact question during the coroner's inquest, and he said that the only person that he knew that had the ability to hypnotize anyone was the great Houdini, who he had performed with in vaudeville. And he said while on the stand, uh, according to him, he was pretty much aware that uh, that Houdini was nowhere in Lake Bluff that particular night, which, of course, you know, gave everyone a laugh and a chuckle on, about that. So, no, he supposedly did not have the ability to hypnotize anyone. Um, did he dabble in that? I, I, I think – I don't know. You know what? He, he was an actor. And um, he was a person who was good at teaching salesmanship. And many of those folks can be very convincing. So maybe he had the ability to be involved with that. I I, I don't know. But when, when he was asked about it on, on the stand, he denies knowing anything about it. Personally, I, I, I've, I've been to one when I was in college, I was at one of these shows where the person comes around college campuses and ends up, you know, doing a, a show. And of course, I watched like eight or ten people get hypnotized doing all sorts of things on on stage. Where and it was hilarious to watch. But um, I, the, the thing is, is he took them out of their trance by snapping or having a key word. I don't know if you threw water on someone or if they were burned, if that would be the thing that would take them out of that or if they would still stay in that. I, I don't have that answer, nor do I pretend to know it. So there were a number of theories circulating at the time, one about her having not been burned at the village hall because of a lack of an odor, one that she had been beaten. Could you address those? Let's first address the issue that was brought up about her being beaten and, and drugged there to die. She There was a red mark across the back of her neck. And, and so early reports were that when the very first day after she was discovered, everyone naturally assumed she was beaten and, and drugged to the village hall to die because there's a naked woman with uh, a burn mark or a, a red mark across the back of her neck. So what you would have to understand, though, and I mentioned this earlier, I built a replica of the furnace. The the edging or the lip around the furnace opening, it was said that she had burned the back of her head. She had no burns to her face. As a matter of fact, her eyelashes, eyebrows were all still intact. Where her, where her head was burned was to the back, which meant whether she put herself in or whether she was assisted, she did this with her eyes looking up at the ceiling. Hence, hence her, her head laying back on hot coals. And if you look at where the lip or edging of the furnace lines up, that would line up exactly where your, where her, her neck was. So really what that, where folks originally reported that she had been struck and beaten in the back of her neck, that was really a burn mark on the back of her neck from the edging of the furnace. Now, as far as the theory about her 
there, there being no odor in the building. This was a theory that Chief Spade, who took over as the chief of police, was, was dead set on that there was no way that she was, that she was burned in the village hall. And, and, and that was based on the fact that he felt and others felt that if she had been burned in the village hall, the, the odor would have circulated throughout the building. Now keep in mind this, and I discussed this earlier, there were two furnaces in the building. One that was the hot air furnace that, that supplied hot air throughout the building, and the other being the gravity fed water boiler. So, Unless odor could carry through water pipes, that's why there was no odor in the building. If she had been burned in the furnace that that carried hot air throughout the building, then absolutely the whole entire building would have smelled of burnt flesh. But because this was in the water-fed gravity boiler, that's why there was no odor in the building. The only odor would have been in the lower basement. And, and also keep in mind, too, this was in the fall in Chicago with temperatures in the 40s and 50s. And this happened at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and the door wasn't opened until 7 o'clock the next morning. So you also had 12 hours of cold, damp October air that would help dissipate any odor that would also be in the building as well. This rumor of her being electrocuted and the belief that she had had a key and had let herself into the building. Any substance to those theories? So here's where that theory comes from. After there there was the coroner's inquest, there there was a press conference that was held at Victory Memorial Hospital where there were a series of physicians that sat in on all the findings from her autopsy. And as they went through all the findings, one of the doctors that happened to be sitting in the audience was a World War One physician. And he was the person who said, well, it sounds to me like her injuries that she sustained were that of what I saw when I was over in Europe through through soldiers that were electrocuted uh, based on the way her blood vessels had had burst. That was one doctor's you know, ringing in on, on, on what he felt and saw. And because there was an electric rail line, there was a theory like, oh, well, maybe that did happen. Um, that was discounted. Um, first of all, that was just one person's thought on, on that whole theory that then became written in newspapers. But two, um, they, they quickly, went to see where she could have been electrocuted anywhere close to in town. And a lot of folks said, well, you know, she took, it was an electric rail line. That's maybe she was electrocuted there. Electric rail lines back in 1928 don't run the way the electric rail lines in Chicago now run. Now there's a third rail, right? Where the, where the tracks are. But back in 28, all the electricity was from above. Everything was a, a rail car attached to wires that, that were high above the street, much like how our telephone wires are now strung. So unless she climbed up or someone took her up in the air, electrocuted her there and then brought her down, there, there's just really no theory to that. Now, as far as the key, where that came from was when she was at the hospital and she was asked by family members and, and, and the, and the staff how she got into the building. She told two different conflicting stories. One, she said that she found the door open and let herself in. And on another day, she said that she had a key. And really, 
her saying that she had a key was really the reason why Charles Hitchcock was eventually fired and asked for his letter of resignation from the, from the village board was because there was suspicion that she may have had a key to the village hall building that a ordinary person should not have had. Now, they never found this key. The key never surfaced in her home. The family searched her belongings, her desk, uh, in her home where some of the letters and things were found. Um, no key uh, existed within her home, and there was never a key actually found anywhere on the grounds of the village hall. So really that was a conflicting story, and, and there were reports. Uh, there, there were actually even an interesting thing. There was a reporter from the Chicago Tribune who had stated like 10 years after the fact that he had climbed into her bedroom at her home in Deerfield and had found found the key in her bedroom and that he had the evidence and I'm going okay yeah th- this really happened uh, one there's no there's no, that's not in any newspapers that this guy found the key there there's no report of any reporter ever finding a key but on top of that keep in mind like would 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 an ordinary reporter be able to get into like O.J. Simpson's house during the Nicole Brown situation? You know, the, the place was guarded, and and that was the same way this was at the same time that this was all going on. This was front page headlines everywhere, and and you're talking a family home in Deerfield that that had six people living in it at at a time. So th- there was no reporter that broke into any house, and there was no key ever found. Hmm. So I want to go back to the police chief and the documents that have gone missing. Can you talk more about that? Well, first of all, Barney Rosenhagen was the police chief at the time that this took place. And this took place in October. And by January, Barney is dead. Um, he, he, th- this case, he was 70 years old at the time. He was close to retirement and Due to the stress that that he was feeling over this case, he ends up having heart failure and dies. So, chief uh, the the deputy at the time, deputy uh, Eugene Spade, then is appointed the new chief of police, and he was involved in the case as as the deputy, and he always suspects that that Charles Hitchcock is the guy, his his fellow coworker. Was, was involved in this. And, um, so all the, all the documents for this case have vanished, including the documents that would have been Lake Bluff police property. And here's why. Back in the day, if you were the chief police, anything that happened in the town and anything that you investigated was considered your own personal case files. And when you retired, you could take whatever you wanted from those case files with you. So when Spade retires, he ends up taking anything that was part of the investigation, all the documents with him. And he had, and he, and he passed away, I believe in the, in the 1980s. And one of the police sergeants in Lake Bluff, who was always fascinated with this case, Murray Michelson, um, went to his funeral and spoke to Spade's son and said, hey, you know, I'm fascinated with this case, with this Elfrida Kanak thing. Um, you know, your dad took all the files with him when he retired. Do you know where those are? And Spade's son said, yeah, they're in some trunk in the attic and that he would try to locate them. 
and Murray Michelson never heard from him again. So basically all, all the investigative materials from, from Chief Spade's watch vanished. We have nothing here in Lake Bluff on, on, on the case. Now, now, now to further that, what, what's even stranger though is this was a front page news sensational case from New York to LA, front page news. And all the coroner's inquest documents, all the state's attorney's information and investigation on this case have all completely vanished from Waukegan. I actually had um, two judges who are friends of mine who were former assistant state's attorneys ask the historical archivist who does all the research work at the state's attorney's office to research this file and find this file. And they both came back to me and said, you know what, Craig, the woman that, that, that we worked with back when we were assistant state's attorneys who knows where everything is went through the entire files for this time. And there are all sorts of cases that date before 1928 that are on file in Waukegan, but there is nothing on this case in, in the state's attorney's office. Now, where and how does that information disappear? I don't know. Did the state's attorney, A.V. Smith, who was in charge of this, also take that with him when he retired? Um, did it somehow go missing because someone made it go missing who knew more about the case and suspected that something might come out? Your guess is as good as mine. But there is there is no information at the state's attorney's office on this case. But you, you would you would also think though that there would be something with the coroner with records in in the case. And sadly, all of those records have also disappeared. We we know that there was an autopsy performed because all all the all the the the, the Waukegan Daily News lists all the findings of the autopsy. The the folks that were the coroner's jury all actually viewed Alfreda Kanak after she had died as part of the coroner's inquest as well. So they actually viewed her body. So we know there was an autopsy performed. And when I went to the coroner's office in Waukegan and asked if I could get get a copy of the coroner's report and also if there were any autopsy photos or anything that would be available. The person there said, are you a family member? And I said, no, but I feel I'm working on a book project and I, there might be more to this case than what was reported. And she said, give me your name and information. I'll see what I can find. And so she sent me an email about three days later and said, Craig, this is very strange. She goes, you know, we, we don't have anything here. We, you clearly found that there was an autopsy that was performed and there is nothing here in Waukegan. We have no record that this autopsy ever took place. And she said that that isn't necessarily based on the time, uh, real unusual because she said we, we only, we have limited amount of space to store files and things. So she said whenever, but, but what is strange is she said what I, I did is I put in a request down in Springfield, Illinois, uh, for the state of vital records for this information. Because she says everything that we don't store here, we send to Springfield where it is scanned and stored on microfilm. So everything with the autopsy should be available in Springfield. 
She put in a request for the file to be sent back to Waukegan. There is nothing in Springfield, Illinois, on this either. It has also vanished. Hitchcock wasn't a gigantic star, as you've established here. I mean, I can't imagine he'd have a lot of sway. The police chief died pretty quickly. Who else in the small town would have had this kind of leverage? Would the new police chief have that kind of power? Who in this little town of 500 would have the pull to have all of these documents vanish? That is the question. And for 1995, folks can buy The Furnace Girl, the mysterious case of Elfrida Kanak, and find the answer to it, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, there, the, the theory is based on uh, – the story is historical fiction, and, and I, 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 I think it's important for folks to realize that for uh, – you, know, f- you have a listening audience uh, of people that clearly love true crime uh, stories, but half this book is really about uh, a child who comes to the Lake Bluff Orphanage, which existed back in the day. Um, and his experience with his little sister and the night that he decides to run away from the orphanage and escape, which which happened at that time, is the night that that this all takes place. And he becomes the accidental witness to the crime and the story that took place. And and so it's it's all based on those facts and things that you would have to know being around town. And um, all I can tell you is that there were. A lot of other things happening in town that could have led to someone in a higher level or power make this go away. So, yeah, I do want to ask you about this. Uh, the vast majority of books that we cover here are nonfiction. And as you've just mentioned, yours is a novel, a fictionalized story based on history. And, and again, this is a collaboration. Um, you came in with the facts, the research the historical background, and then you got together with a friend and wrote the book. Why did you decide to go this particular route? Well, um, I, I, I guess I'd answer it by saying that, um, so, so I reached out to my friend Toby, who had written two other books, primarily because even though I, I, I actually wrote and directed a documentary on on uh, the Lake Bluff Children's Home or Orphanage that was out ten years ago, and um, I've written things for the Ghost Walk scenes and and, and little eight minute vignettes, but um, I've never taken on a book project, right? And in the same way that a director or producer hires a screenwriter to to write the screenplay, um, I needed somebody who I could tell the characters to and tell the story and and have that person create this for me or my, my vision. So um, it, it was a collaboration. And, and actually, interestingly enough, folks that, that, that purchased the book will find is Toby and I never met in the two years that it took to put this together. Um, I would record eight to ten minute um, narrations of each chapter, uh, similar to like if you had gone to see a movie – and we're describing a scene the next day to a friend uh, who has not seen the movie. I would record those, send those to Toby, and then he would create a chapter out of that, email that to me. I would look it over for historical contents. This needs to be changed. That needs to be changed. This character should do this and that. And then we'd move on to the next chapter. So we, we never met 
in, in the two years of the time that it took to do this. This was literally handled online through long phone conversations and also through uh, messages that were sent. But for, for me to, to tell the story this way through a boy's eyes, it, it takes the, it takes the horror out of the crime. Um, I've had many book clubs that I've spoken to say, I was expecting this really horrific book. And it, and really what I found was this really beautiful coming of age story about a boy and his little sister at the orphanage and how he experienced this horrific event that took place in the town. So it was just a different way uh, of telling the story in the same way that James Cameron told the story of the Titanic. You know, I mean, the, the whole Leonardo DiCaprio character was was not a real person on the Titanic, but it was a, a way of taking these historical facts about the Titanic and the way it sunk and the passengers there and telling it in a different way. And and that's so that that's why it was it was I, I chose that way to tell the story. Plus, all the time uh, that I put into the documentary and my research also made it an easy way to tell the story too, because I uh, it was a nice way to integrate the the story of that because it's it's really the the furnace girl is really three stories that dovetail into one it's the story of the lake bluff orphanage it's the story of alfreda kanak and charles hitchcock and it's also the story of this historic place that we have in lake bluff called crabtree farm which um was owned by a very wealthy couple uh scott and grace durand back in the early 1900s and and those three stories dovetail into one one story and all end up connecting so it it was just the way to tell the Alfreda Kanak story in a, in a different way I'll admit that this is not a story that I've heard before and it's really fun to encounter something for the first time and kind of soak it all in you've mentioned that there's some misinformation on the internet um is this a case that conspiracy theorists have grabbed onto is there a lot of debate going on on the uh, interwebs about this mystery? There is, I, I think, on uh, there is a, a website called Web Sleuths, and there is something like forty-three pages of comments and dialogues about this case, and links to uh, various articles and and. Um, that's when I started reading those. That's when I started going. Gosh, folks are so way off on 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 all these comments. So yes, there is a lot of debate about it, and and it, it's it's strangely enough for it being headline news across the United States. So few people really know about this unless you've done the ghost walk uh, through the Lake Bluff History Museum. So uh, if you're in Lake Bluff, you know about the story. But you know what, Eric? E even my mother, when I told her I was starting on, on this book project and, and working on this, my my mother, who raised me in this town, her comment was, oh, you mean the woman that was cut up and, and her parts were thrown in the furnace and burned? And I'm like – no, no. <laughs> See, this is how this is how rumors get started. She was never cut up. She was never thrown in the furnace. But that's how the internet tends tends to work, and 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 that's why I had said even earlier that the biggest mi misconception with this is is the Kanak family never never doubted that she went to the Lake Bluff Village Hall. 
they they never doubted that they just felt that someone coerced her or was in partnership with her or was morally responsible for her death and that that's what they wanted justice in not not that they felt that she was necessarily taken to the village hall by someone and beaten and tortured so tell us how we can find you how we can buy your book contact you fill us in sure so the the best way of finding out the most about the book is actually by going to the website if you go to the furnacegirl.com there's all sorts of information there's a Q&A with questions uh, for me, as as one of the co-authors, there's authors. There's a question, a Q and A for Toby as the writer. There are photos from the book launch, uh, which took place at Historic Crabtree Farm, uh, which is part of the story. And and there's also links to where you can purchase the book, which are local bookstores throughout the Chicagoland area. And then if you if you're not in Chicago, you can uh, find it on Amazon if you if you just do a search for the Furnace Girl. Perfect. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. You know what? Thanks for having me. It's, it's always fun to, to talk to folks about this. And, um, you know, it, it was one of the unknown things in working on this project that I didn't realize I would have so much fun with was meeting with book clubs and talking to groups. And everyone's got their own theory on what they feel happened with this and it's fun to uh, I literally go to book clubs and we'll spend two and three hours answering and taking questions on 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 the facts about about the case and oftentimes even about uh, the orphanage which is the other component to this story so I enjoy it I'm I'm a I'm a history nut and and I'm really a film guy I mean truthfully Eric uh, whereas whereas most folks write a book because that's the end-all project uh, for me, this is really the starting point. I, I'm really a film guy, and my my goal uh, when I reached out to Toby uh, to write this for me, it was really based on the fact that I said, you know, I really have an idea for something that I think would make an incredibly great TV series, an eight-part AMC or an HBO historic-type miniseries similar to Boardwalk Empire um, for folks that like historic fiction, and I have a story about this case that I want to tell you about. Would you be willing to to write this for me? And um, I talked to him for an hour and a half. And after telling him the story, he's like, dude, you want me to write that? I'm like, yeah. So, that uh, you know, my goal eventually, Eric, is to get this into a movie or some type of, 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 of series. And so whereas most people write a book, that's the end all. Uh, this is really the starting point for me. Um, I hope to be involved at some point uh, in the film version of this. And uh, I'm actually even working on another documentary project right now that will be out next year on a wedding ring that I found when I was five years old when I was digging in our backyard of our home in the garden. And it was uh, uh, inscribed on the inside of the ring was A period S September 6, 1900. So it's it's a wedding ring that's over 120 years old, and I've been trying to figure out who the ring belonged to and try and return it to its rightful heirs. And I've been working on this for over 20 years, and I just figured out the mystery about four months ago. So I've been documenting this and filming the process, and uh, that project will be out uh, next year. I'm hoping around February 
uh, of this time. So um, hopefully lots of good things to come down the pipeline. Oh my gosh, that sounds excellent. Uh, and when you have some venue for your release, I will mention it here. I appreciate it. Eric, Eric thanks so much for having me on. Your, your, your show is awesome. And there, there are so many podcasts that are out there on the internet. And uh, they are oftentimes just someone who doesn't have any of the facts on any of the cases. And I, I feel like every one of your shows, you, you always find super interesting people to, to talk to besides uh, other than me, probably. And, and you and the questions you have and the stories you, you do the best job, I think, of, of, of getting some of the best questions and facts out of these cases. Well, thank you for the compliment. Very nice of you. Thanks again. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Craig Moreland. He, along with Toby Jones, authored The Furnace Girl, The Mysterious Case of Elfrida Kanak. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>